Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to vote for your favorite episodes of 2017, as well as telling us about yourself and your listening experience at EconTalk. Go to econtalk.org, econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to the survey. Thank you for a great year, and I hope to make 2018 better. Today is December 19th, 2017, and my guest is Dick Carpenter, who is a director of strategic research for the Institute of Ju- Institute for Justice. He is the author with William Meller of Bottleneckers, Gaming the Government for Power and Private Profit. It's a book about occupational licensing and relating, related issues, topics that we've talked about recently here at EconTalk, and that's going to be the subject of today's conversation. Dick, welcome to EconTalk. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, what is a bottlenecker? A bottlenecker, as we define it in the book, is someone who advocates for the creation or perpetuation of, of a government regulation, particularly an occupational license, that restricts the free flow of workers so that those who are in the occupation can enjoy an economic benefit. So what would be an example? Well, if we think about it in the occupational licensing terms, most of us are aware that that doctors and lawyers have licenses. I think generally people understand that Barbers and cosmetologists have licenses as well. Um, but today, there are lots of occupations that heretofore never required a license, now do require a license. And that's often very surprising for people. So, auctioneers and locksmiths, sign language interpreters, furniture upholsterers, um, you know, florists in Louisiana, interior designers, all of these are occupations that now require a license which is essentially a government permission slip to work. You have to go to the government to get permission in order to work. That's what a license, that's how a license operates. And most people don't know anything about it. Uh, And that, of course, would include me to some extent, although I'm interested in it and have been for a little bit of time. I think most people's attitude is, well, that seems reasonable um, to be representing yourself as a florist. You have to have some knowledge of, I want to say floristry. I don't know if that's a word. We'll say flowers. We'll say flowers (laughs) just to play it safe. And (laughs) so a license, what do you you have to do? Maybe you could take a test. But, of course, the range of things you have to do to get that license varies quite dramatically. Give us some examples of that. Yeah. So uh, we actually published a report just about a month ago. We at IJ, my co-authors and I, examining licensing requirements of 102 different low to moderate income occupations, very much like the ones I just mentioned, auctioneer, um, locksmiths, and so forth. And so we, we examined the requirements for these particular occupations and found, as you said, that they are often very disparate. On average, um, one has to complete about a year of education or experience, complete an examination, and pay about $267 in fees to the state. These were amongst the five types of requirements that we collected. The other two were minimum age levels and minimum grade levels. And there are other requirements as well to 
earn these licenses, CPR training, bonding and insurance, character references, et cetera, et cetera. But we examined just those five that were most common. And so on average, it takes about a year, which to many people may not sound like a much, may not sound like much in so much as if you have a college education or perhaps if you have multiple degrees, maybe a year doesn't sound like much. But for somebody who wants to work as a cosmetologist, for instance, and may come from a disadvantaged or low-income background, spending a year in education or experience is a long time and a lot of resources spent earning a license rather than earning a living. So it can be a significant hurdle to enter that particular occupation. And But these requirements are often very disparate as well. So if you want to work as an auctioneer, 30 states license auctioneers. If you want to work as an auctioneer, four of those states require a year or more of education or experience. But Louisiana only requires seven days and Vermont is only nine days. Eleven of the states that license auctioneers have no education or experience requirements at all. So we see these very disparate requirements. Locksmith is another great example where in most states that license locksmiths, there are very um, small or minor education and experience requirements. But in uh, New Jersey, for some strange reason, they require more than a year of education and experience to work as a locksmith. So these requirements are often very disparate to do the exact same job. That's just one type of disparate finding. We often found that in one occupation, you'll find that some states license and other states don't license. Or if you compare the licensing requirements of one occupation to another vis-a-vis the safety risks, you see some very irrational requirements. So we found that on average, to be a cosmetologist, you'll spend about 12 times as much, um, in edu- as much time in education and experience as compared to EMTs who spend about a month in education or experience. So there are these really disparate requirements which undermine this rationale of licensing. The rationale is we need to protect public health and safety. Well, if that's the case, then why is it that only 10 states license furniture upholsterers? If if there's really a dangerous epidemic, we would expect more states to license it. Well, it could be those other 40 are just playing with a fire. You know, they've got all the really bad um, armchairs and and (laughs) couches, and they just don't know any better. So it's hard to it's hard to know. Uh, I mean, the thing that's striking to me is, first of all, before we go for, go um, further, IJ is Institute for Justice that you mentioned earlier, and they're a. Uh, why don't you tell us what they are actually? Sure, IJ is a nonprofit public interest law firm that represents individuals whose most basic rights are violated by government. So IJ represents all clients for free. IJ specializes in suing the government when the government infringes upon basic rights of individuals. We take no government money of any kind, except one, that is attorney's fees when we win. Otherwise, we take no government money, and we're supported entirely by donations by individuals. And so we represent individuals on in the sphere of economic liberty, people who want to work but are prohibited from doing so by irrational government licenses. You do other stuff as well, though. This is just this is an important area of, of what IJ does is trying to break down licensing requirements that are not related that's, to public health and safety, right? That's right. So we also litigate in the areas of private property rights, free speech, and educational choice. 
So uh, the other thing I want to clarify is a cosmetologist, that's not an astronomer, right? <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That was a yes, joke. Yes. Thank you. appreciate that. But, but it's not, I'm pretty sure it's not an astronomer, but it has something to do with cosmetics so, and looking good. But what is it in some level of precision? Because it's, it's a term that licensors use, but it's not a term. Uh, not many people say, I need, to, I need a cosmetology appointment today. Well, sure. So the cosmetologist is somebody who's going to work on your hair or sometimes work on facial features, occasionally on nails, although that's typically done by a manicurist. So uh, the cosmetologist is somebody you're going to see when you go into your salon. For, for It's usually a term that's associated with, with women and women's services, where a barber is something that's associated with men receiving hair styling and so forth. So what's wrong with having... Cosmetologist, uh, say the woman who cuts my wife's hair, um, have a license um, to make sure that that she does a good job. So licensing purports to protect public health and safety, but in fact, there uh, is little evidence that it actually accomplishes that. Um, but there's plenty of evidence that it comes with significant costs, and these costs. Um, have been quantified by economists now for a number of years, which include uh, increased consumer costs. And I should back up and say the mechanism for the cost is this. The occupational license, (laughs) occupational licensing is one of the rare public policies that does exactly what it's designed to do. It keeps people out. We talk about unintended consequences of public policy. This is an intended consequence of licensing. It keeps people out of the occupation. And so that means the licensing acts as a bottleneck, as we describe in the book, that, per, that restricts the, the flow of workers into the occupation. And those who are in the occupation, therefore, can artificially inflate prices and wages as a result. So that's the mechanism by which these costs are created. So the first cost is increased cost to consumers. These artificially inflated prices and wages are passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices. But it also restricts job opportunities as well. So Morris Kleiner, who's I would call the dean of occupational licensing research, has studied this very extensively and found that uh, licensing actually results in more than 2 million fewer jobs on an annual basis across the country. Licensing also restricts interstate mobility and migration. It makes it harder for people to move from state to state. So picture somebody who works in a state, has worked in a state maybe for a decade in a particular occupation. They're not licensed. But for whatever reason, they either need or have to move to a different state. And they may discover that prospective new state has a license. And so now they're going to think twice about moving to that state. Instead, may look at moving somewhere else as a result. So there's this reduction in interstate mobility and migration. So, and then there are other costs that we can talk about as well, but these are kind of the three that have been most prominent in recent years. So what you get then is this public policy that, that, that purports to protect public health and safety, and evidence shows that it rarely accomplishes that. Also, it rarely accomplishes uh, another stated goal of increasing quality of service over and above kind of market regulation. But at the same time, it comes with these significant costs as well. So those are kind of the economic um, arguments about it. But then, of course, there is the rights-based argument associated with it as well, that licensing 
um, it, it infringes upon the right to earn an honest living unnecessarily. That is, there's, there's no need for the license and therefore infringes upon the right to earn an honest living unnecessarily. And what the book chronicles are, are a number of really tra- often tragic cases of where people's opportunities to make a living have been stopped. And, and it's an empirical question as to whether it, it should be stopped. You say the goal is to keep people out. Well, you could say, well, that's a good thing if it's people who are not going to do a good job or are going to hurt people. And it's a really bad thing if it's people who are going to be helpful and therefore they're not going to be able to contribute to helping other people through the skill that they've acquired or would like to acquire or would like to use and learn about. Uh, I, I want to put it in a little bit of context for uh, long-term EconTalk listeners and even maybe some newer ones. Uh, a concept we've talked a lot about on the program is the bootlegger and Baptist uh, theory of regulation from Bruce Yandel, mm-hmm. um, EconTalk guest in the past, and whose uh, who's view of regulation really changed the way I think about it. And in the bootlegger and Baptist story, uh, there's sort of two arguments, there are two two parts of a coalition in favor of more regulation. There are the Baptists who have high-minded uh, ideals in mind, and this would be in the case, the reason it's called bootlegger Baptist is that Bruce was talking about people who wanted to ban liquor sales on Sunday. So the Baptists don't want liquor sales on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day. The bootleggers, the people who sell liquor out of their uh, back of their car or in a quiet corner of town or out of their house, uh, with those bootleggers... They love banning liquor sales on Sunday because it creates a demand for their product. And so the politician uses the cover of the Baptist. They say, well, it's the Lord's Day. How can we have liquor sales? But also is taking money typically from the bootleggers who are self-interested in the regulation and who um, contribute to the politician. The politician isn't going to say, I'm in favor of banning liquor sales on Sunday because – uh, I take a lot of money from people who have stills in their backyard. They instead say it's the Lord's Day. So they use the ideal of the high-minded argument, and it's a cover, a mask for their self-interested uh, rewarding of a goodie to a special interest group. And the same thing happens over and over again in your book and is uh, what's what I, w- I want to go into in some depth, which is – uh, the idea of, of defending public health and safety is lovely. Uh, keeping out competition for the bootleggers is not so lovely. And, of course, the bootleggers, as almost as always the case, they're a couple different kinds. They're the people who are in the occupation who benefit from the restraint on the supply of, of people into it that thereby would otherwise lower the wages and the income. But there's also the people who do the training sometimes that's required. So they also, strangely enough – think that the training is a really important requirement. So talk about some of the examples of the training that's required and whether it's related to public health and safety. Sure. So one of my favorite ongoing examples is music therapy. So there's an occupation called music therapists, and this has been something that's been freely practiced uh, without government regulation for many, many years. But in recent years, the Industry representatives, the American Music Therapy Association Certification Board for Music Therapists, have been going state by state advocating for the creation of a license. And this is really, this is an embodiment of what we talk about in the book, Bottleneckers. 
And the, the story here in the book is that licenses are not created by harmed consumers and concerned citizens going to the legislature and beating down the doors asking for protection. These licenses are overwhelmingly created by the industries going to the legislature and asking for the license. So for the music therapist, as the example, they go now, they have state-based task forces, and they go state by state asking for a license. And the, the licensing requirements are often very severe. So Georgia created a license for music therapists. So now in Georgia, if you want to work as a music therapist, to earn the license to work as a music therapist, you are going to have to, these are all the requirements, you're going to have to obtain a bachelor's degree or higher in music therapy, and that music therapy program has to be approved by the Music Therapy Association. That's the very entity that lobbied for the license in the first place. Then you have to successfully complete 1,200 hours of clinical training. You have to pass an examination, which is offered only by the Music Therapy Association. That costs $325 to take. You'll pay various fees to the state. You have to be 18 years of age or older. And then you have to pass a criminal background check. So these are fairly high hurdles to work in a job that heretofore never had any form of government regulation. And now all of a sudden has very severe requirements associated with that license. And that story is told again and again and again. And so in the book, one chapter after another, we describe how that happens, the process by which that happens. And it's interesting you note that those who are involved in providing the training are often very interested in that. So in the process of creating it, you have the industry going and asking for the license, but they will often marshal the support of not only industry members, but also members of higher education or post-secondary institutions that provide training. So it's very common that you'll see a professor of music therapy or a professor of interior design or whatever the, the discipline happens to be, where the professor will be there who will also say, yes, it's very important, the training is very important, um, but not saying, of course, explicitly that his institution or her institution will benefit significantly from the government requiring all of this training. So these who provide the training often will be part of this process to create these licenses. Well, it's just interesting to me that in the case of, say, the financial sector, most of us are uneasy with the idea that there's a lot of communication between financial regulators and the financial sector. The financial sector will defend that, as will uh, government officials and politicians. We're saying, well, they have all this expertise in the financial sector that we're using to help figure out what is good regulation what isn't. And we say – most of us kind of say, well, you know, I think there's kind of a conflict of interest there. In this case, though, because the person on the board, say, uh, or who's testifying is a professor, which we have a generally positive attitude toward as opposed to a banker, we sort of think, well, that person's going to make sure that the that the therapy is done correctly or that the, that the interior design person is well-trained. But, of course, the economic interest, the self-interest and the conflict of interest there is the same in all those cases. Sure it is. And you, you mentioned the, the board or the, somebody who's going and asking for the license uh, would be somebody from the industry. But once the license is created, a board is created to oversee that license. And that board is immediately captured. By that, I mean, that let's say there are nine members on a board overseeing the new license. Eight of those seats are going to be captured by members of the industry and sometimes one of those individuals will be somebody who's a faculty member or 
or somebody who provides training from a post-secondary institution and so forth. Um, and even if it's not, they sometimes these boards will have these kind of subcommittees that have different areas of focus or responsibility. And so those who are providing the training will be intimately involved in decisions that are being made. They're, they're the, as you said, they're the experts. And so there's some deference given to these, to these experts in the process of, of overseeing this license. And interestingly enough, when you look at the legislation that creates the licenses, often the legislation will, will defer the creation of the requirements to the boards. So sometimes the legislation will, will explicitly say you have to have this much education, pay this in fees, et cetera, et cetera. But other times the enabling legislation will actually say, all of, we're going to create this license, but the requirements to earn the license are going to be established by the board. Well, the board has now been captured by members of the industry who then set the requirements. And as you said, there is a serious conflict of interest because they have the ability to keep their competitors out by setting requirements. Now, I'm trying to be a good devil's advocate here, Dick, which is not easy for me because this happens to be an issue I care really, I care a lot about. I think it's really, um, I think it's a, it's an enormously depressing thing that so many unskilled people trying to get a foothold in an occupation can't get started and are therefore forced to find something else, which may not be easy for them to do, or they're passionate about it. They're passionate about braiding hair, which – and let's talk about that as an example because I think my devil's advocate part of me and being a good host of the program wants to say, well, okay, but training's a good idea. There's nothing wrong with requiring training. It's nothing wrong with having a board that would understand what training would be necessary to be a musical therapist because I have no idea. And as a consumer, I might not have any idea even if I care to hire one. So it's nice to know that maybe that's been – taken care of by people who have more expertise than I do. And a lot of people say that's a good thing. Now, my natural tendency, of course, is to let the market sort that out. And if people can uh, provide something of value and create a brand name and name for themselves, it's probably going to be fine. Don't need that formal piece of paper. But the problem is once you read in the book about what some of the examples are, you realize it's it's kind of a the, – the, the bootlegger part's kind of dominating the Baptist part. So let's talk about hair braiding, which is um, – Again, it's like kind of a small thing, but it's not for the people who are involved in it. So tell us what, what's happened there and what what's happened with the courts and um, that situation. Certainly. So Tell us, tell us what hair braiding is because um, my hair has never been braided. Although I've had a pon- <laughs> I had a ponytail in college, just for the record. Well, mine has never been either, and I don't think it's probably even possible. But uh, <laughs> hair braiding is the many, many years, centuries-old practice um, of, of b- basically the, the name tells you everything you need to know, braiding hair. This is uh, short for African hair braiding. And so this is something that, um, that f- women have been doing in Africa and passing down to their daughters for, for eons, this idea of braiding hair. And so there's a, an entire culture built up around hair braiding in Africa that came over to America and has been practiced in the United States for many years. And so here in the United States, the same thing happens that a mother will often teach her daughter and that daughter will teach her daughter, et cetera, et cetera, or friends will teach each other how to braid hair. And so this is something that has been done culturally within the African-American community forever. 
But cosmetologists have seen this as a threat to their industry. And so they have seen fit to impose cosmetology requirements on African hair braiders. But let's be really clear. Hair braiding is not cosmetology. Hair braiding is braiding. I spent a week in Tupelo, Mississippi. I was writing a, a study, doing a study on entrepreneurship. And so one of the subject of my study was an African hair braider, Melanie Armstrong. And so I spent a week down in Tupelo, basically living in Melanie's salon. And so what I observed was it is braiding. There, there's no coloring. There's no chemical. There's no cutting. It's just braiding hair. But cosmetologists think that, well, that's, the, that's somehow related to the work that we do, and so therefore it needs to be regulated. But to work as a cosmetologist, you're going to have to go to school for a year or more, and then you will end up spending between fifteen dollars and $25,000 in tuition to earn this cosmetology license. And it turns out that there's nothing that one will learn in cosmetology school that applies to African hair braiding. So you're forcing a braider to spend enormous amounts of time and money to learn or to earn a license that is irrelevant to their work. And I, we should, I don't interrupt for a sec because for people who don't know much about hair braiding, a lot of people may have braided somebody's hair once in their life. This, this is a this is an advanced form of hair braiding we're talking about. This isn't like a, somebody stops in for five minutes in that salon, gets a a braid and walks out and pays five dollars. What, what? Give us a range of what kind of things are done in the salon and what the what they're able to charge for that service. What the value is? Sure. So a a typical braid, a kind of a basic braid, could take an hour or more to do. And so these are very intricate braiding and weaving of hair. And some so sometimes you, you you'll hear people refer to cornrows. That could be an example of braiding. Or sometimes the braiding will include. Um, uh, you know, a little uh, kind of uh, little uh, beads or, or, or other um, uh, bling, if you will, that's braided into the hair. Sometimes hair extensions are braided in. There's a form of braid called sister locks that was uh, created by one of IJ's clients a number of years ago that uses a particular type of tool and it creates these really delicate locks that are absolutely beautiful when it's all completed. And so, and the sister locks process can take many hours. Some of these braiding processes will take not one day, but could take up to two days. And so, when so I was what, sitting, Mel- what does Melanie charge for that? So, some of these, yeah. So you could you could probably expect to pay in multiple hundreds of dollars for some of these braiding procedures. So it raised the question: if nothing in the cosmetology training helps Melanie do her job better. And since probably in the mainstream salons of Tupelo and elsewhere in the state of Mississippi and elsewhere, um, there's not a lot of braiding going on. There's just cutting or dyeing or straightening or curling. Why are they so, where's the zeal come from to keep Melanie from making a living? I have a thought. I'm curious what your thought is. Well, we, in the book, we describe the concept as license creep. So the notion is that a license is created, a cosmetology license is created, a board then oversees it, and then over time, the board will attempt to push its authority out, push its fence out, 
and sweep in occupations that operate at the fringe. And the zeal is, again, couched in this idea that we need to protect public health and safety. Well, those people are touching hair and they might threaten public health and safety by passing on some sort of disease or something like that. And so, therefore, they need to go through all of these requirements. So that's what they will say publicly, but it's also a threat economically as well. Because those people are offering, hair braiders are offering a service that might draw people away from cosmetology. In fact, here's here's an anecdote. I was in Tupelo, sitting in Melania's salon. She said she suggested to me, "Why don't you walk down?" She her salon is in a strip mall. Why don't you walk down the end of the strip mall, take a right, and go into a salon, a traditional cosmetology salon, and watch what happens down there? And you can see a contrast. And so I did. I went down there. I sat in a traditional cosmetology salon. And a woman was giving a perm to a young African-American woman. And a perm for white people, for Caucasian people, a perm means, of course, you're curling your hair. It's the opposite. For African-Americans, a perm is to straighten the hair. And it's done with chemicals. So I was watching as this cosmetologist was putting these chemicals on this girl's hair. And she was the young woman was becoming increasingly agitated because the chemicals were actually, were actually uh, you know, kind of like causing some sort of like uh, chemical reaction on her hair. So she was anxious because she wanted to get it kind of washed out. Whereas in a, cos- in a hair braiding salon, that doesn't happen. It's all done naturally. And so the fear might be, well, if people realize that they could go and have their hair done in a very aesthetically pleasing way that doesn't involve these chemicals, that might be a threat to my business. Well, I think it is. I think it's a uh... I, mean, I just like that as an example because at first it shows you the range that, of competition that actually exists in the real world, that hair braiding is a competitor to a perm or any kind of fancier haircut, some kind of haircut that would make your hair look nice. Um, it reminds me when people say that unions like the minimum wage, unions like the minimum wage, and you think, well, most – in fact, almost all union maker, union workers earn more than the minimum wage, so it must be out of – care and concern for low-wage workers, but that forgets the reality that low-wage workers are competitors for higher-wage workers. You can substitute a lot of lower-skill workers in some settings for a few higher-skill workers, so they like unions benefit materially. I'm not going to – financially, I'm not going to suggest they don't have any good-hearted motive. Maybe they do, but there is a financial motive in there as well, and that's certainly the case The case here. Um, can you give, give us a picture for – the hair braiding legal environment nationwide. So I, I live in Maryland. Um, listeners who are all over the country, maybe they're outside the United States. If a person listening wants to just start a hair braiding operation, uh, learns the skill from a friend, and it suddenly finds that it's it's satisfying and they're good at it, can they? what are the odds they can just start a hair braiding business? Does it depend on where they live and how has that changed? And I know IJ has been involved, the Institute for Justice has been involved in opening up that opportunity for people. So give us a little bit of that history and and where we are right now. Sure. So because and I just I ask because so all, almost all this regulate all the regulation you talk about is is local. It's either state or citywide, which means that it's very hard to you have to go state by state, city by city, fight the fight this. That's right. Uh, licensing is primarily a state function, and we're now involved in a project looking at city-level licensing as well. There is some licensing at the federal level, but is predominantly at the state level and certainly at the city level. 
So you're right. When one wants to reform licensing, it is a state-by-state effort, much like those who advocate for the license have to go state-by-state in order to create the license. So for many years, operators had to earn a cosmetology license in numerous states. And we have been representing braiders in challenging those laws. And we've been successful in having these laws overturned or successful in having legislatures create exemptions where they will say the cosmetology license will exist as it is. However, braiders are exempted from this or um, they, they don't have to earn a cosmetology license, but they have to register with the state, which is now the case in Mississippi as a result of the work of Melanie Armstrong, who launched this reform effort in her own state. So through either legislative change or through success in the courts, we have been able to make changes in some states. There are still states that require the cosmetology license or in other states where it's not entirely clear if it's required. So we talk, I talk about in the book Justina Clayton in Utah, who learned braiding as a young woman growing up in Africa, immigrated to the United States, married, moved to Utah. She was uh, in in a family situation where she needed to earn some extra money. Her husband was in in school. She was in school, etc. And so she began braiding hair. Now, she actually contacted the cosmetology board at the time to ask if she needed a license and was told she didn't. And so she went forward and began braiding hair, making extra money. But then she, uh, she received an email out of the blue saying, you're doing the work of cosmetology and you have to have a cosmetologist and you have to have a license. And so she thought, this is crazy. I, I had already asked about this. And she went back and double checked. And now, for some strange reason, when she checked the second time, uh, several years later, they said, oh, oh, you have to have a license. She was gobsmacked. She was told that she didn't have to have this license. And so she went to the board and she said, I don't understand. Why do I need this? She gave a presentation, a PowerPoint presentation about why this license is not necessary for hair braiding, but they were completely intractable. They were unmoved. They they said, you have to have this license in order to braid hair. So we represented her and that is IJ represented her and and, uh, succeeded in having that law changed in Utah So that's the process that is often required in these states that you'll either have to go to the legislature and try to get an exemption or you have to sue the state in order to have these changes made through the courts. There's a whole bunch of different examples in the book of different professions where this is the case. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to your viewpoint and you obviously work for the Institute for Justice. So you're more it's probably a little more likely that you're going to see. The uh, this is a self-interested bootlegger problem rather than an idealistic protect public health and safety Baptist kind of legislation in various places. But you go through a lot of different cases, um, selling caskets being an example, uh, being a tour guide, um, selling liquor across state lines through the through the mail through, through uh, across across the country. And in a lot of these cases, it's pretty clear to me, unless you've misrepresented it, and I doubt you did that, um, there's not much of a justification here except to keep people out. So talk for a little bit about the challenge of going after this state-by-state or city-by-city in the case maybe of, say, taxi cabs or limousines, another example. You're going state-by-state. All this stuff 
seems to me to be unconstitutional. <laughs> it just seems to be, you know, it's the kind of thing where if I told my kids when they were young, like 12, they'd say, well, that's not, that can't happen in America because they have some romance uh, about freedom and we're a relatively free country. But it turns out it's a big problem and it's a huge, it's actually a very common, increasingly common use of government power to keep people out of these jobs. Shouldn't this just, all this just be unconstitutional? How come we can't just win? Yes. Well, that's, that's certainly the position that we take. Um, the, the challenge here, there are a couple of challenges. Number one, uh, there are different views of the Constitution. So there's a well-known law professor, Randy Barnett, at Georgetown, who talks about two competing visions of what the Constitution says. One is uh, the presumption of liberty, the presumption of freedom. That's not surprisingly our view of the Constitution. And that says that people should be free to, in the case that we're talking about right now, people should be free to pursue the occupation of the choice without unnecessary government intervention unless and until it is shown that there is a reason, a need for government intervention to protect the public. That's one view. The other view is that um, the government should have the ability to intervene unless and until the person who wants to work freely shows that this that that what the government is doing is unconstitutional. So you have these two competing visions at work, and so this these two competing visions play out on a day to day basis in courts, uh, certainly somewhat in le- in uh, legislatures, but certainly in courts where there are for many years now, since really since the late 1930s, and certainly since the 1950s, this idea that there, there is a, a proper and necessary role of government to regulate here. And, and so this idea of the presumption of constitutionality of government intervention has prevailed for a number of years, which was different than many, many years before that. At the founding and, and up until the late 1930s, the opposite prevailed, that is, the notion of the presumption of freedom. People were free to choose and to work in the occupation of their choice without unnecessary government intervention. So we've had these competing visions of the Constitution going back and forth. And so we're obviously in court trying to advocate and push courts toward this presumption of freedom, this presumption of, of liberty. But the, on the other side, the, the, the licensing proponents are the, they're the concentrated interest, whether in the legislature or whether in the court. They're the power of the concentrated interest. So in the legislature, for instance, they go and they advocate for the creation of the license, but then when the license is challenged, so if there's a reform effort like Melanie Armstrong attempted in Mississippi or Justina did in Utah, if there's an effort to reform in the legislature, the power of the concentrated interest comes into play. And so they'll mount a campaign in order to protect that license. They'll, they'll have industry day at the Capitol and they'll, they'll bring many members of the industry and they'll hold a rally on the steps of the Capitol. They'll do personal lobbying in the state legislators' offices. They'll make strategic campaign contributions. They'll give special awards to legislators. They'll invite legislators to the workplace. They'll groom these relationships and they'll give testimony in committee rooms why these licenses are so necessary. And they'll fill the rooms up with members of the industry. This is what I mean by a campaign. And that's the power of the concentrated interest, bringing to bear that, that influence on state legislators who don't hear from the other side. 
The consumer, you and I, we're not represented in the room when these decisions are being made. And why not? Uh, uh, because, number one, we don't know. These are, these are things that are happening in, in some state capital somewhere where most of us are busy doing our lives. We're busy working, raising our families, and so we don't even know that these things are happening. We are somewhat innocently relying on our elected official to represent our interests. But as public choice theory tells us, the elected official has his or her own interests, which aren't necessarily the public's interests. Their interests are being reelected. And so there's an, a, an implicit quid pro quo that happens. The, pers- the, the, the elected official will grant the license to this group, the special interest group, and the group then implicitly will support this elected official at the next election, just as an example. So the, the person who's elected a representative is not always necessarily doing so. Well, the key also is our stake in it. It's relatively small. I might want to get my hair braided, but that's one of the many – it's a small part of my life. If I'm, a hair, if I'm a cosmetologist, it's a big part of my life. It's my livelihood, so I'm going to be vigilant and zealous in keeping out competition. And, of course, the people who might benefit from the repeal of the license might not even know that – this is something they're interested in right now. They might not know, think about being a hair braider, but they might down the road, and it's too late. They missed the hearing because that wasn't on their radar screen at the time. There were only a few of them in the actual practice of the of of the occupation. What's interesting to me in the chronicle in the book of what often happens, it's usually a, a complicated process. There's some hurdle, some bottleneck put in place that has no relationship to public health and safety. There's not a very good case to be made for the for the license, say, or the terms of the license. There could be some – there are terms of the license that might make sense, but the actual terms turn out to be clearly restrictive without any benefit of public health and safety, let's say. And so what happens is you, IJ, or somebody brings a suit saying this is a bad law, it's a bad legislation, it's a bad license restriction requirement – and the judge will often say, at least in some of these cases, yeah, but the legislature voted on it, and therefore I can't – I'm not going to interfere with it. And that's why I brought up the constitutionality part, and I, you know, we had Clint Bollock um, on the program a long, long time ago talking about what's the appropriate role for a judge in that setting. But my personal preference would be that the judge represents the Constitution and say, well, this seems like a bad law. Of course, what ultimately happens is it it gets challenged, it appealed. If, if you have the money and if IJ has the time and the resources, it will get appealed and eventually some can get to a very high level. I would just hope that some of those higher level decisions might influence some judges down the road to be more willing to strike down some of these licenses that are not productive. Do you, is there any evidence for that? Yeah, that's certainly the goal. Legal change generally is made uh, slowly, one case at a time, one decision at a a time. So setting precedent that can build upon itself in future decisions. So we talk about caskets as an example um, in the book. And so for many years in many states, if you wanted to sell a casket, you had to be a licensed funeral director. Now, let's be clear on this. A casket it's a box. Is, a, is a box. It's a box. <laughs> There's nothing mystical or magical about a casket. In fact, right now, anyone listening could take their phone and order a casket from Costco and have it delivered to your house. 
Now, there's an exciting opportunity. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know, Dick. That's the kind of service that Econ Talk listeners expect from this program and from our guests. Why do you, well, you mention said, that? <laughs> yes, you said you wanted to make Econ Talk better in 2018. So That's I'm true. We're about. doing it. We're doing it. Right. Um, now, why do you mention that I can order one from Costco? Well, because the, the funeral establishment will tell you that you have to have all of this specialized knowledge to sell a casket, that there's something really specialized that requires all of this training to be a licensed funeral director in order to sell a casket. When in fact, there isn't anything specialized that you need to know to sell a casket. But for many years, funeral directors prevailed. And so if you wanted to sell a casket, you had to be a licensed funeral director. So we challenged that in court uh, and had a great victory in Tennessee in the Craig, what was called the Craig Miles decision. Uh, Pastor Nathaniel Craig Miles was our client. And so that decision, although it was a number of years ago, has now been very instrumental in challenging subsequent casket um, uh, laws and also other laws as well, in that that decision was talking about, well, there's no real rational reason why this law is necessary. Why do you need all of this training to sell a casket? That's kind of the, at the core of that particular decision. And so with that decision, IJ attorneys can then use it again and again to say, look, a judge, this judge has already said this is irrational, all these requirements. And so you, judge, now the case before you at this time, you should, you, should, uh, you should apply the same type of standard in this particular occupation, whether it's caskets like we did in Louisiana with uh, monks who wanted to sell caskets there or other types of similar occupational licensing cases. So bill one case after another builds a precedent to try to, to, uh, to encourage judges to do real judging to actually look at the circumstances and make a decision. And have, um, as a result, Cas- Costco can sell caskets. It could, could buy, it sounds like she sells seashells by the seashore. It could be a good brain, a tongue twister. <laughs> Costco, I can't do it. I'm in trouble already. But Costco can sell caskets. Um, and has the price gone down? Yes. Competition works. So uh, in the funeral industry, the price of caskets has actually was marked up anywhere from 250 to 600%. And even in industry publications, when I was researching, doing research for the book, I found industry, uh, by industry, I mean like funeral establishment, funeral publications and so forth, magazines, where authors would say, would just say to themselves, to, you know, to other funeral establishment readers, we all know this is where we make our money. This, the casket is where the money is made, and so this the leveraging casket, leveraging the often the guilt of the surviving uh, sure, loved one. Sure, yeah, and so this two hundred fifty to six hundred percent markup was a significant increase. But with the introduction of competition, now you see casket sales are much lower. The example we talk about in the book with uh, with Pastor Craig Miles was. When he had to uh, bury his mother-in-law, he paid a significant amount, you know, two, three thousand dollars for a particular casket for his mother-in-law. And then after that, while traveling in New York, he found the exact same casket for something like eight hundred dollars. New York was unregulated; you could sell caskets without a funeral director's license. And so, competition definitely does, as in technology and many other sectors, it uh, definitely drives down prices. I want to look at uh, wine sales. It's not a licensing uh, example, but it's an example of a bottleneck, literally. This is the bottle of wine, and it's also just another example of where the existing industry tries to use um, the power of the 
state to restrict competition. And it's also a beautiful bootleg room Baptist example because it's about alcohol. So I kind of was drawn to it. Um, I was shocked in reading about this. Just to, shock's too strong, but I was I was intrigued and surprised by Rockefeller's role in prohibition and the removal of prohibition, and how that uh, ended up affecting uh, the beer and wine market going forward. So, tell try to tell some of that story. It's a little bit. It's a complicated story, but it's it's a very interesting story. All right. So, uh, the movement, the temperance movement, that eventually resulted in prohibition, was a long one. Um, and there were many who owned businesses, industrialists like Rockefeller and others, who throughout this kind of this growing temperance movement um, came to believe that alcohol was a significant problem. It had many social ills. And so Rockefeller and others pushed strongly for prohibition as a way to, to solve this social problem, to solve the social ill. Well, as it turns out, it came with its own other problems. And that was, it created a sense of lawlessness um, as it created this black market for, for uh, alcohol. Um, and so, uh, although prohibition... Alpha, uh, alcohol, excuse me, Rockefeller was a, was a bootlegger and a Baptist. He, he had a financial motive. He thought workers would be more productive if they were less uh, drunken. But he also was a lifelong teetotaler, meaning he didn't drink, Correct. Yes, that's which is exactly also right. interesting. I just thought that was kind of cool. Keep going. Sorry. Yes, he was both economic and principle yeah, based yeah. In, in his <laughs> objection. That's right. And so he was instrumental in funding and pushing for prohibition, and but didn't really think through. I don't think I don't know that people really even had the language at the time that we do today when talking about unintended consequences. Certainly, people didn't think about the unintended consequences, uh, primarily the lawlessness that was created as a result of it. And so after a while, as Prohibition kind of ground on, Rockefeller and others became, began to realize, they came to understand that it wasn't really solving the problem as they had hoped it would and was creating all of these other problems that they had not intended. And so here's this man who was instrumental in the creation of Prohibition and eventually kind of threw in the towel and realized this isn't accomplishing what we wanted and it's creating these other problems. And so he gave up his support for prohibition and then led an effort to repeal. So with the repeal of prohibition, <clears throat> he and some, some colleagues of his, uh, they did this study toward liquor control that looked at how we might um, regulate the industry. And so his two colleagues recommended two different approaches. One approach was that states would control the sale of alcohol. That if you wanted to buy alcohol, you had to go to a state-owned or state-sanctioned uh, firm, retail firm. A second approach was called the three-tier system. And the idea was that they were going to create this separation within the alcohol industry. So the alcohol industry has producers, and they have retailers who are selling the alcohol. And then the third tier is the distributor. So this three-tier system is created with these producer, distributor, retailer. And the idea was that they would, by law, say that the distributor had to be in between the producer and the retailer and that no one could have a financial interest in, in multiple of those three tiers. You couldn't be both a producer and a distributor. You couldn't be both a producer and a retailer. And the thought here was that 
they would be solving a problem that existed before prohibition. Before prohibition, you could be both a producer and a retailer, or a producer and a distributor. And they, the belief was that because of that, there, that, that the producer and the retailer, who could be one, they were, they were, they were out there pushing alcohol too much. They, that they were instrumental in the overconsumption of alcohol. And so by, by, by creating this, these distinctions, these legal distinctions, where one could not be the other, you could be a producer but not a retailer, or a distributor but not a retailer, that it would reduce overconsumption of alcohol. That was the logic. It's debatable, but that was the logic nonetheless. And so the distributor, by law, is, is put in between the producer and the retailer. And as a result, by law, what they're doing is essentially injecting a bottleneck into that process. And so the distributor enjoys the ability to mark up the cost of the product as much as 30%. They serve no particular function in reducing the overall consumption of alcohol. Well, they do they a little do bit. It. They do a little bit because they make it more expensive potentially, which keeps, <laughs> keeps consumption <laughs> okay, down, right? I'm not sure that was the literal intention of the of that system, but it does have that effect. Right. I suppose, arguably, that could be true. But they've, they've inserted the distributor in here and created this bottleneck and increased costs. And so these are the two forms of regulation now that we see that predominate. The three-tier system is, is more common across the states. More than 30 states have it. But the state-owned or state-regulated, state-monitored system is also true in some states like Virginia as well. And so this is how alcohol is regulated. Many people don't realize that this is how it's regulated. And the, the, the price of their, of their wine, for instance, is going to be significantly greater by as much as 30% as a result of this type of regulation. And so wine wineries... Um, would typically sell to retail stores, but they would have to go through a distributor by law in three-tier states. They couldn't sell directly to a retailer. They would have to go to, through a distributor. That was a, a significant problem. But a second problem was, as the wine industry and consumers of, of wine became interested in, in going to uh, wineries and and uh, buying directly from the, main, or the producer rather than from a retailer, there was this new burgeoning market. These producers could actually sell directly to consumers, and people would travel. So uh, our client, Juanita Swedenberg, she had a winery in Virginia. She had clients who would drive down to Virginia from New York or from Michigan or from Maine or from other places, and they would love the wine that Juanita sold, and so they would want to buy directly from her. They couldn't get her wine in New York. No distributor would would sell her wine in New York or pr- would provide retailers with her wine in New York. And so, because she was, the, too, it's important to mention this. That's because she was just small. Yeah, she's, she's yeah, a boutique. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. The distributor has an interest in representing people who are who are big players. Because they want to move as much product as possible, so they don't want to represent some small winery in, in the middle of Virginia. They want to sell people. They want to sell products that are going to move a lot of a lot of volume, and so they're not going to represent people like Juanita or Dave, uh, our other client David. So it was hard for those consumers in New York or other places to get wine from Juanita, and so they could they could buy it directly from her. They she could she could ship, ship her wine directly to them, but then she discovered that that was illegal. 
because she wasn't going through a distributor in order to do so. So that was the, those were the facts of the case that she was saying, this is ridiculous. Why do I need to have a distributor just to sell directly to a consumer and in of course, New York? Or normally, normally it wouldn't matter much because it's hard to find out about every little niche winery. But with the Internet starting to uh, grow in the 90s, you have the opportunity now to get the word out, to spread information, to have these smaller custom both breweries and uh, wineries finding a market for their product that a distributor might not be willing to deal with it because the returns small relative to the fixed costs of adding a client. And the the great thing about this example is that you need an excuse to explain why you shouldn't be able to buy wine where you want. So if you're in New York State, why shouldn't you be able to import a bottle? You you can drive down to, to Virginia and carry the wine home. Why can't you have the winery ship it to you, and of course the answer is it's dangerous. Explain. Well, it's the, the argument from, for the distributors, the argument is, well, it's dangerous because um, who knows who's buying that wine? That could be a 13-year-old boy ordering that wine and having it delivered, and that 13-year-old boy is going to buy this boutique wine from a, a, a vineyard in Virginia and get drunk drinking a $50 bottle of wine. This is, Which this is, is the argument. It, well, it's a good argument because we know that uh, 13-year-old boys in the, without this would never get access to alcohol. There's no teenage drinking uh, anywhere in America uh, until this happened, and you could just mail-order wine. I mean, it's such an absurd argument. Of course, the, the three-tier system doesn't protect um, teenagers either. So, Well, not yeah, I, let me interrupt and say not only is it absurd because – it's not like they can't get alcohol from other places. But what 13-year-old boy is getting drunk on $50 bottles of wine? Well, one, with, one has access to his parents' credit card. And, <laughs> and, and you know, I, I guess it's conceivable. It's not it, – we're laughing about it, but it's possible that a kid could use mail order to get alcohol. That, that kid might have trouble generating a fake ID or having an older brother or whatever or finding friends who've been able to do that and get access to alcohol. So having it delivered to your house is a lovely idea as long as your parents don't check the credit card bill and and uh, aren't home when the delivery comes and you say, Jimmy, what's in that box? And he says, comic books. You know, it's awfully heavy for comic books. And you open it and there's this $50 bottle of four, four $50 bottles of wine to save on the shipping. Um, is um, well, There's an easy – I should say there's an easy fix for that. Yeah, explain. And that is – and the easy fix is that the, the shipper – whether it's UPS or FedEx or whatever, the shipper just has to, cannot deliver the goods, cannot deliver the box uh, unless it is A, signed for, and B, signed for by someone who is of a certain age. Right. So that's just a great example of how a lot of times we might have sympathy for the thrust of a particular regulation, but the way that it actually gets implemented is done to protect someone rather who's not the one we're claiming it protects. So... That kind of regulation would be okay. Might be hard. Might be expensive. You, you know, UPS maybe doesn't want to have to check the age and prove, have an ID and all that for the person who signs for it to prove that they're over twenty-one. But you could argue that's problematic. But certainly, it's problematic. Just to say no. No wine sells across the United States lest a teenage boy or girl has access to uh, alcohol. And of course, it's ultimately an empirical question. And Right in these court cases, that I assume came up a lot as to how serious this problem actually is versus just trying to scare people. Yes, that's right. And so, the, 
in the case, in Juanita's case, that that actually did come up as an empirical question. They could they couldn't find any evidence that that was in fact a problem. And even despite trying to, they would set these sting operations to try to you know to 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 capture this in, in action, and they were unable to do so. In fact, they found quite the opposite, where the sting backfired, and and um, and they uh, they they weren't able to they. They discovered that people were buying alcohol um, in a way that was unanticipated and et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, the, the point is there was no evidence that that was actually happening, even though they attempted to even manufacture it through a sting. Now, a lot of these examples are – these are occupations that are relatively small in number. There aren't a lot of hair braiders in the United States, but there will be more thanks to IJ. Um, there aren't that many people making a living selling caskets, but there are now more. Uh, so these are all good things, but there's some big areas um, that are, would be more controversial. I, just one example I want to mention, you don't talk about in the book, I don't think, is um, education. To teach in the public schools, you need to be certified. Uh, my wife teaches in a private school. She does not have an education degree. She's therefore incompetent uh, by, in the eyes of the state. To teach mathematics uh, because she does does not have an education degree, and that's a, I think a, just a grotesque miscarriage of justice in our public school system that people have to have a set of hoops they have to jump through that have little to do. You might think they have something to do with it, but in fact, you know, one of the things my wife had to do is she had to take American history if she wanted to be a public school teacher in, in math. That didn't seem to be that relevant. Uh, there are a lot of things like that that are in place simply to make it expensive for people to add to the supply of the folks who are doing a particular occupation. So I think that one, I think most private school teachers that have uncertified teachers seem to be doing just fine. Um, and, of course, I'm an extremist. I've been hiding this from from you, Dick, but I think listeners probably know I'm not a big fan of any kind of licensing, even in economics. I don't even think economists should be licensed. So uh, lawyers and doctors strike me as a case where most people would probably think it's a good idea, but I'm not. Uh, I'm open to the possibility that, that that's a bad idea. Where are there when, when you're thinking about the Institute for Justice and what your work is? Where are you looking? What are the cases that? How do they come up? Since I don't think you're out there trying to get doctors uh, to be able to practice without a license, correct? Right. Most of the clients for IJ are going to be small entrepreneurs. So we're we're typically our typical client is not going to be somebody who is a well-heeled physician, for instance. Although we have we've we do represent physicians in the cases of certificate of need, for instance, which you and uh, Professor Munger talked about a couple of months ago, and we represented a dentist, for instance, in a particular case. But by and large, these are folks who just want to enter an occupation, who want to own a business. As a uh, as a as a hair braider, for instance, <clears throat> or they want to enter an occupation, maybe not as an entrepreneur, but they just want to work. They want to go to work for someone, and so it's really we're talking about the kind of small business folks who are on the first rungs of the economic ladder, people who may who may be entering or re-entering the economy. These are the typical clients that IJ represents. So. Which, do you have a, a personal opinion about licensing in general? Do you think it should just be banned? Do you think it's just basically unconstitutional, or do you think there are cases where it has merit? Even uh, even at the after our founding, you know, kind of during the even during the 
Lochnerian era where where uh, there was this belief that there was a right to earn honest living without unnecessary government intervention, there was still a balancing going on. So it wasn't as though it was like everybody has to work, everybody has the ability to or the right to, to work in anything they want, period, full stop. There was still, even at that time, an attempt to find the right balance, a recognition that there might be some role for the government in the process. And so we still ascribe, uh, ascribe to that. So in other work that we've done, this report that I mentioned at the beginning of our talk um, called License to Work, we talk about how for too long we have lived in this binary world of licensing and no licensing. There, those are the only options out there. But in fact, there are multiple options in between licensing and no licensing. And we should be clear that no licensing doesn't necessarily mean no regulation. It means market regulation. People's behavior in the commercial sector is regulated, and certainly no, at no time in history has that been truer than today, where on our phones, we can get more information about a service provider through third-party websites than any licensing scheme can ever provide. And companies firms, businesses pay close attention to those ratings and they regulate the behavior of those service and goods providers. So just because there's no government intervention doesn't necessarily mean that there's no regulation. There's market regulation at work. But if there is some need that the market cannot meet, then there are other forms of government interventions that doesn't require a license. So for instance, mandatory bonding and insurance, registration, inspections, certification. These are all examples of government intervention that do not restrict entry into the occupation, but can still have some of the purported benefits of licensing without all of the accruing costs. It's just interesting how our culture responds and how it how we are um, socialized to feel about things, whether the government protects us from something or not. I was coming off the metro the other day in Washington, D.C., and I woman asked me for directions, need to get somewhere, and she said, how long would it take me to get there? And I said, you know, I, you might want to just take an Uber because the metro stop wasn't going to get her very close. And she was, I don't know, she, she, was, she was not a young person. I don't know how old she was. She might have been in her 40s or 50s, let's say. And she looked at me quizzically, and, she, and I said, have you ever ridden in an Uber before? And she said, no. And I sa- she said, I mean, getting into a car with a stranger? <laughs> and I said, one, I said, do you ever get in a cab? Yeah. I said, do you know the cab driver? <laughs> the cab driver's a stranger, too. Now, she could have said, but the cab driver's been licensed and vetted by the government, and she would be right. But, of course, that doesn't stop them from sometimes doing nice, not nice things to people, like not picking them up for starters or doing worse things to them. And you know, I explained to her that that an Uber driver, even if that person hasn't been vetted in, in a formal way by Uber, which I think they do some, mm-hmm. they're vetted by the customers who have rated them accordingly. But I said the most important thing is that if, God forbid, something happens to you in that Uber, Uber knows where they are. They know where that person mm-hmm. is 24-7. They know you're in the car with them. The cab driver, there's no record of who's in the cab. So in many ways, Uber is regulated in in different ways, obviously, and you can argue whether they're – Better or for worse, but it's not 
it's not like the Wild West, the so-called Wild West, which wasn't probably so wild, but it's not like, oh, anything goes. A drunk, uh, a, a drunk axe murderer could pick you up as an Uber driver. And of course, there have been tragedies in Uber. There's tragedies in cabs. It's, it's, it's a complicated question that comes down to empirical evidence. Most of us ride Uber all the time, go to Airbnb all the time. There's no inspections uh, the way there are with hotels. But if it, if the person shows up and the Airbnb is filthy, uh, they get a bad rating. And so that does restrain them to some extent. Certainly it does. So here's another example. My, my wife uh, has sustained an injury at work, and so she had to go to a workers' comp doctor, an assigned doctor. She couldn't go to her primary care physician. Hmm. But before going to that doctor, she <clears throat> looked up the doctor on the Internet and found that the ratings for this doctor's office were not so wonderful. Okay. But she had to go there anyway. So she goes, she does the appointment, everything turned out fine as far as the appointment is concerned. As she's leaving, the person at the front desk said to her, how would you rate your visit today? That is not an accident. Right. That question to my wife is not an accident. Yeah. That office knows what kind of ratings it is getting. Yeah. They are paying attention to how consumers, even in the healthcare industry, people are rating uh, providers, and those providers are paying attention to how they are being rated. And they're attempting to regulate, or they are regulating their behavior as a result. And this has been one of the great innovations in recent years that has improved the ability of consumers to make decisions. Where before, with a licensing scheme, if you actually intended to use a licensing scheme to make a decision, which you probably didn't, if you wanted to, to go and get information was a Herculean task. To find out information yeah. about a particular good or service provider under a licensing scheme was almost impossible. But now you have it all at the fingertips. And so it helps consumers make even better decisions at no time in history. Yeah, and I... Uh, of course, I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm sympathetic to that view. Why don't you why don't you close this out and talk a little bit about uh, an issue we hear about, which is inequality and uh, the growth in inequality. And you know, my view on this is some inequality is hideous because it's the result of people who are very wealthy using the political process to protect themselves, and some is glorious because it means sometimes that someone's created something that a lot of people like and they've gotten really rich, and that's fine with me. But we tend to focus on that upper end, and I think we often forget about the folks at the bottom and the things that make it harder for people who, for whatever reason, are struggling economically. How important do you think this, these issues are for them? And uh, I think you have a statistic in the book that licensing has grown dramatically in the United States as a, as a phenomenon. How important do you think it is uh, to these kind of issues and uh, prospects for making it better? That's where we've seen most of the growth in licensing. So it's an off-quoted statistic now, but in the 1950s, about 5% of workers needed a license. Now it's about 25%. And the important thing to note there is that the growth in that licensing is not because we have disproportionately more doctors or disproportionately more attorneys. It is because now we see growth of licensing in occupations that never before required a license. And this growth has been in these types of occupations for people who were at the first rungs of the economic ladder. So it's falling, this growth is falling disproportionately harder 
on the service industries, for instance, or people who are wanting to enter or re-enter the economy. The Wall Street Journal, just a couple of days ago, over the weekend, had a really interesting article about rural America on a young woman who was in rural Indiana and moved to, just had to get out. She moved to San Francisco. And, and then she went back, and she was visiting friends and family in the small town in Indiana. And she hooked up with a former high school friend, and it tells this story about how this high school friend who was in, you know, rural America is called a new urban blight, a new urban America, because rural America is economically very hard pressed. Yeah, we've been talking so about this, that here. Yeah, so this young woman, <clears throat> she gets out of high school, she goes into debt in order to get a cosmetology, um, get training as a cosmetologist, but then. When she got out of school, she couldn't get the license because she couldn't afford the $150 license application. $150. She couldn't afford it. These are the types of people that are hurt by licensing because even after they go into hock to get that training, they can't even get the license because they don't have the ability, don't have the money in order to do so. So these are the types of people who are really struggling under licensing. And here's, here's another sector that I think many people don't realize, and that is people who have a criminal background. If you have a criminal background, you spent time in prison for one reason or another, it, when you get out, research is very clear. Your ability to stay out of prison, your likelihood of staying out of prison is tied closely to your ability to find meaningful work. But licensing schemes often restrict the ability to get a license based on a criminal background. They say if you have any kind of criminal background, if you've done time in prison, if you have a felony conviction, you cannot get a license in this job. And so we're cutting off entire sectors of occupations for people who desperately need to work, but now they're unable to do so. And it's even worse because... Many states spend enormous amounts of money training people in corrections institutions to work in jobs, barbers, electricians, plumbers, etc., etc. They spend huge amount of money to train these individuals, but then when they get out of prison, that same state has a licensing scheme that says you cannot get a license as a barber or an electrician or a plumber because you have that criminal background. And so that is another example of how people who desperately need to work in these types of occupations cannot and are hard hit by all these licensing requirements. My guest today has been Dick Carpenter with William Meller. He's the author of Bottleneckers. Dick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It is my pleasure. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.